rejections, Jesus still offers to those who will hear and receive it the gift of eternal life. See, all these verses that we just read, everybody's responding and reacting to something that Jesus had said and something that Jesus had done. It's been a bit since we were in uh, the Word, since we were in John. But if you remember, verse 37, something happened that, that caused all these different reactions amongst the people. Verse 37 says this, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I love this, this description, the word uh, used to describe Jesus crying out. You know, I grew up, and uh, much to my mother's regret, I got into some heavy metal as a teenager. And so when I see that Jesus cried out, I'm like, yeah, I always knew it. I always knew it. Jesus, Jesus is metal. But it really was kind of this, this wild scene. Earlier in the chapter, it talks about Jesus coming to the feast and, and making an, an appearance and people wanting to kill him and people wanting him arrested, and he'd already been accepted, then rejected, accepted, then rejected by the masses, and here he is, the last day of the feast, making a scene, boldly declaring that if anyone thirsts, they should come to him and drink. So what we see initially is the first reaction. It's a reaction of the masses. Now, the details of the story, in my opinion, don't really give a condemnation or approval of the initial reaction because it says, like, well, some people, they were saying, well, this guy is, like, the prophet, so this guy is the guy who's going to come before the Messiah comes, before God comes and makes things right. This guy's leading the way, kind of how we think of John the Baptist now in retrospect. They're like, this is the prophet. This is the guy before the guy. And then others say, this man's the Christ. This man is the one who's actually here to make things right. They're presently under the rule of the wicked Romans. This guy's here to uh, release us from this oppression. But I don't necessarily see a declaration of belief or unbelief. Mainly, I see a description of public debate on the merits of this intriguing individual. Verse 43 says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. My sense is that these are shallow, go with the flow, follow every trend, and react to the news cycle people. To them, Jesus was a concept or an idea to be debated about. But what we know about Jesus is that he always moves the conversation about himself away from the masses of public opinion into the very personal. Here in America, there is no shortage of public opinion about Jesus. I see this the most in politics because Jesus is a mascot and the theology of who he is and what he was is debated to fit whatever agenda that the politicians have. And we just latch on. We're like, yeah, I agree with that part. Jesus is inclusive. Jesus is, is rejecting. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. 
but ultimately it doesn't matter where we fall on the side of public opinion of Jesus because Jesus moves things very personally. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17 says this. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking, What does the culture say at large? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And that's what we just heard here. But he said to them, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This call to a personal development of your own opinion of who Jesus is continues, and we see it in Philippians 2.12. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the charge. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Many people just want to like latch on to, to what's being said and be like, I'm team this, I'm team that. I'm team this, the opinion about Jesus. I'm team that, the opinion about Jesus. But honestly, have you ever given some actual thought, some actual personal investment, some actual heart into the answer of who do you say that Jesus is? A personal relationship with Jesus first requires a personal answer to that question. You know, I, I get a front row seat to this all the time in youth ministry. You know, I, I told him this last week, Wednesday night. I was like, you know, if I were to ask you guys, are you guys Christians, probably 90, 95% in the room, I'd get an answer of, yeah, of course. And if I pressed a little bit, like, why, what's going on, they'd give me some. Some could articulate more than others, like something that Jesus had done on a cross for sin. But the next question, the more pressing, the deeper question is, okay, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And the question beyond that is why? And that's where we really get to it, right? It's like, oh, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, of course. I'm team Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Sure. Why? That's the personal development. That's the personal answer that, that can't be faked, that can't be passed on from your mother and father, that, that can't happen by going to church. And the unfortunate reality is, is that where those answers never come, where that faith is never worked out individually, is where faith fades away at the earliest sign of deconstruction. The first question is kind of like pick and pull away. Like, is that really the God you believe in? Does that sound like a God you want to believe in? I mean, it happens earlier and earlier. We used to warn about, oh, make sure your kids are Christians before they go away to college. It's happening before that. You better make sure. You better ask them and not only ask them, but model for them what that actually is. To like, know Jesus and love Jesus. And we see that shallow faith get tested right away here in this passage. 
verse 41, 42, it says they, they get challenged here. They get pressed. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now, Jesus was from Galilee. Jesus lived in Galilee. But we all know he ended up there after his family fled his birth home, Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Family leaves. They come back. Jesus makes his adult home in Galilee. It's true. But any amount of actual personal investment and curiosity in who this Jesus was would give them an answer to say, wait, wait, wait. This guy, this guy is from Bethlehem. This guy was born there. But they're just following the cultural trend that falls apart so easy at any deconstruction, at any pressing. Now, over the years within Christian culture, apologetics has kind of taken a hit. It's like apologetics isn't everything, Kim Ham. Like, you don't have to know where everything came from. You don't have to be Kim Ham. Apologetics for sure isn't everything, but it's not nothing, right? Because if your faith is so shallow that when you're pressed, you just like fade away, you fall apart, your faith is gone, uh, it takes some personal investment, it takes some research to find out when someone says, well, like, this dude's from Galilee, the Christ isn't from Galilee, he's from Bethlehem. It's like, oh, I, you know what, I, I know this one, I know this one. He's, he's from Bethlehem. But the next reaction is that of the officers sent to arrest Jesus. You know what? Growing up in the country, I feel like I know these guys the best. They don't necessarily know the words of Jesus. They aren't interested in, in like the debate about who he is. But they know his name. And with that name comes a certain air of, of respect. See, where I grew up, like there's a ton of churches but there's also, like, a ton of farmers who is, like, if you ask them about God, they're, like, God is right up there with veterans in our flag. All right? Respect. They go in church, they'll take their, their farmer hat off. No offense to your farmer. They're my favorite people. But, like, there's this thing. It's, like, when it comes to Jesus, there's nothing really, like, personal going on there. But in the culture that they're in and where they grew up in, it's like you respect the church. You respect Jesus. Same way you respect our flag. I feel like these guys are, are the same. It says the officers came to the chief priests who said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, I, I'm not really, like, giving them a ton of credit here. Some people read this and they'll be like, these guys were obviously converted. I don't necessarily see that. I see people reacting to the tone of Jesus and the crowd's reaction to that tone of Jesus. See, they're there to, to like come in and ex exercise some authority, right? They're there to come in and to arrest Jesus, to exercise an arm of condemnation coming from the Pharisees. But then Jesus speaks, and he speaks boldly, and people react. And so they're like, well, it seems like the cultural tone's shifting, so I'm going to go in the direction that everything else is going. But then they, they come back, 
And the Pharisees chastised him. We're like, are you stupid? Are you as dumb as these dummies that, like, were really impressed by what he said? We don't get a ton of detail here. We don't get any, like, pushback from them. I'm assuming they're like, oh, maybe I'm not that dumb. Maybe, maybe just caught up in a moment. These men are pragmatists. They are slaves to whatever opinion is leading the day. But just know, like, you can go about your whole life and think about God in a very practical way and show respect when respect is needed and follow the cultural rituals that you're in. But Matthew 16, 25 through 27 tells us that there's an actual eternal consequence to our response to Jesus. It's important not to be swayed by the current cultural climate to just avoid appearing odd or weird. Matthew 16, 25 through 27 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Like, we can't just give an answer of like, it just seemed to be what they thought, and it, it was just the culture I was in. I was a cultural Christian. I tried to be a good guy. I tried to respect authority. It's not enough. It is not enough. According to Jesus' words in Matthew. But the next reaction that we see is that of the Pharisees. The reaction is not one of the intellectually lazy in the masses. The reaction is not one based on the cultural tone because they were the ones setting the tone of culture. Their reaction to Jesus is one of religious satisfaction. Their reaction is one that had a theological system that was working for them. Their reaction is one that had a theology where God was serving them instead of them serving God. Jesus was a threat to their system. This is why in verse 45 it says, they're, they're like, why did you not bring him in? Why did you not remove him? They couldn't debate Jesus, so they needed to silence him. They had too much to lose. They felt safe and superior in their knowledge. And you can hear their arrogance oozing out of them in verse 47. It says, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? And it's telling that, that they think within the knowledge of the law is what saves. That knowledge of right and wrong is what brings salvation. But we know it's quite the opposite. Knowledge of the law isn't really accomplishing much. Romans 7, 10 through 11 tells us this. It says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, 
and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, but sin and their inability to follow it is going to kill them. But they say, like, not knowing the law, these people don't know the law, they're cursed. They think their knowledge about God is what's going to save them. And I, I think for us as, as a church, this is, this is the dangerous place where we most likely are going to like fall in this conversation. Is we're going to come and collect facts and information and anecdotes about who God is to insulate ourselves and, and build a safe, comfortable faith. A faith that knows a lot of things about God, but doesn't necessarily come close to knowing God at all. Their religious attitude was insulating them from real knowledge. They had knowledge of God, but they did not know God. And beyond that, they were lying. They were just lying to people to keep their influence. We hear this thing again in verse 52. It says, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, as a matter of fact, if you know anything about the Bible, you might know some of these names. Jonah, Hosea, Nahum, possibly Elijah, Elisha, and Amos. Guess where they're all from? Galilee. <laughs> like, it's so crazy. They're, they're just relying on people's ignorance and and. Possibly, like, their own filter to keep power within themselves and make sure that, like, their religious system doesn't come tumbling down in this representation of God and the temple in Jesus. And so they're just going to say, no prophet comes from Galilee. Jonah. We all know Jonah. Hosea. Nahum. Elijah. Elisha. These guys are from Galilee. No prophet comes from Galilee. We can get so caught up in our own theology. We can get caught up and so sure in our facts and information about God that we can miss God. You know, I can tell this story about a friend I had who, who came to this church. And uh, I can tell the story because it's my friend, not yours. So get with it. You know, I met this guy. I had a lot of respect with him. And without giving away too many details, we worked together. I got to see uh, his faith in action. I'm not in any way going to say this man is not a believer. But there came a time in our church when we started moving uh, to more teaching and, and, and understanding things and the gifts of the Spirit. And it's not like it was a new thing going on here. Mercy Hill's always, I, I've always known, has been open to the gifts of the Spirit. But for some people, like, they show up, they, they just didn't know. I thought this guy knew because I had talked to him about these things. And he came to church for a while. I love seeing him here. He's starting to serve. But then we started doing spirit-led. And all of a sudden, he's like, uh, I think I'm out of here. I'm like, what? What do you mean? I knew this guy. This guy knew the scriptures. And so I'm like, talk, talk to me. What's going on? What do you mean you're out of here? Well, you know, that Holy Spirit stuff, I just, I, I don't know that I can agree with that. And I'm like, okay, 
I know you know the Bible. So will you tell me where in the Bible you disagree with the direction that we're headed here with Spirit-led? Well, no, I know, I know the Bible. I know the Bible doesn't, doesn't forbid any of that stuff. And I'm like, great. So what's the problem? Well, it's just a little, it's just a little weird. Dude, I used to respect you. The respect is gone. You don't like something because it's, it's weird? You're putting your subjective feelings and emotions over what the Word of God says? Oddly, isn't that the critique of the whole Spirit-led thing? <laughs> You're putting your feelings and your emotions and your theology, what you're comfortable with God being above what his Scripture says he is. And before I come off, like, uh, I've never messed up or erred in, in this area. You know, my family's had a rough time with sickness and cancer. My nephew is on cancer number two. He had it when he was three. And there were some, like, miracles that took place there. Some real things that the only explanation of the hand of God moved. My nephew's 13. Cancer again. Not going as well this time. And there's been times where I'm like, God, how I know you, how I relate to you, I don't know that I can do that anymore. Because you aren't serving me in this situation the way that I think you should. My whole life I've had this theology where you heal, you have power. Where I come to you and I ask and you give. It's not happening this time. God, I don't know who I am in relationship to you right now. But that's never been the point of God. It's showing his power through healing in my life and people that I love. That's never been the point of his power shown. The point of God healing is to show more of himself and an opportunity to draw closer to him. Also, the point of God not healing, it's got to be the same thing. Is God, if you aren't fitting my theology, if you aren't fitting my experience the way that I've come to expect, that's okay. Because the goal of the Christian life is not to be healed. Because let me tell you a reality. No matter how many times you're healed, no matter how great your faith, the healings stop. And you die. And through the midst of that suffering, whatever the age is, if you come to this place of bitterness, of God not being who you thought he was, you're missing it and you're missing him. Of course God's a healer, but more importantly, God wants to know you. More than your greatest need and your greatest time of sickness. And God knows in my family, the last month, you can probably hear my voice a little bit. We've had some sickness hanging on. But more than needing a healing, 
need him. You need to know him. Because knowing him is what carries you through. Knowing him is what gets you through it all. And we've seen the, the responses, we've seen the failure, failures and the responses, but we do see one response that I think we can benefit from. It comes from Nicodemus, verse 50. Nicodemus says this, Nicodemus who had gone before him, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now you remember Nicodemus from John 3. He came to Jesus, he acknowledges Jesus is from God, but he wants to know more. He's a seeker. He's asking the tough questions, even when it's like, some of this stuff is over his head. He must be born again, Jesus. How, can I get back in my mother's womb? Like, what are you talking about? But he's a seeker. He wants to know this Jesus for himself. He sought Jesus personally outside of the crowd to learn. Well, some people might say, well, he was afraid of his life. Well, sure. But he's still going. He's still learning. And here in John 7, we don't necessarily have a confirmation that Nicodemus is a believer. But we have examples, two examples so far in Nicodemus' life that says he is seeking to know the truth of who Jesus was. Nicodemus says, give him a hearing and learn what he does. And that is truly the invitation of this message this morning. To know Jesus. As Nicodemus says, give him a hearing, learn what he does, get to know him personally. Not as a theological concept to be debated. Not as a cultural icon worthy of your false reverence and recognition. Not as a tool to manipulate God and others. But to seek and learn who he is. Philippians 3.8 says this. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's lost everything, but he says, knowing Christ is my Lord, there's surpassing worth in knowing Christ. 1 John 5.20 echoes, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. It says, God, give us this understanding so that we may know him. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. This is all very personal. This all moves away from the theological construct. This all moves away from the public opinion. And this moves to a very personal question. 
for yourself and a challenge for you to follow the steps of Nicodemus to seek and to hear and to learn who Jesus is so that you may know him. It's not for nothing. This attitude in Nicodemus, I, I, I don't think, was just like, well, he was just a seeker, and this guy was a seeker who found. We see at the very end, after Jesus had been crucified in John 19, verse 39 through 40, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And we see Nicodemus in chapter 3, see him here in chapter 7, and we see him all the way at the end, still following Jesus while Jesus is still in the ground. This is a faith that carried Nicodemus throughout Jesus' life. So the challenge to you is, look, if you want a faith that's going to last, abandon the cultural debate. Who is Jesus? Pick an aside. The Jesus that works for you, that helps you win. Abandon Jesus as a mere theological construct and a fence that really just separates you from actually knowing him. You're just stacking bricks of wealth, knowledge, and information up, and you're no longer seeing his face. Get to know this Jesus through seeking, through looking to hear who he is. And that comes in different ways. There's no, no specific method or methodology, but I do know it probably starts with prayer probably starts with worship, probably starts with sitting in silence sometimes, probably starts with listening to his word taught. But there has to be something within you that actively engages in this and wants to know him and believes that you can. And that's the faith that lasts. That's the faith of Nicodemus that mattered. That's the response that was greater than all other responses that we saw in the story. So at this time, uh, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to end as we uh, normally do on Sunday mornings. End in a time of worship. And my encouragement to you is that in this time of worship, that you respond to Jesus for yourself. Maybe there's areas of your life where, you know what, God hasn't lined up with your expectation of what he should be. Don't allow your expectation to get in the way of you knowing this Jesus. Because at the end of all things, the only thing that's going to matter is not, did you get what you wanted from God? The only thing that matters is, did you get God? Did you seek him? Did you answer the question for yourself, who is he? Let's pray, dear Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the examples and the way that you're...